I'd like you to take your hymnals and turn to the back, same way you were this morning, page, actually page 871, I think. It's question 27. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. I'm not going to uh, be giving a normal scripture verse-by-verse uh, exposition tonight. But I want us to uh, think about our Lord's humiliation. You'll find that in number 20, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number 27, on page 871 in your hymnal. We're going to read that together in just a moment. Our emphasis upon the glory and beauty of the first Christmas certainly has its place. What a significant event in the history of humanity, let alone in our particular history as Christians. But uh, sometimes we make it almost too glorious and too beautiful. We need to balance those kinds of facts, which are true enough, with that statement that we see here in Westminster Confession of Faith, I keep saying that, Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 27, Christ's humiliation. Now, what do we mean by humiliation? Humiliation is the quality or state of being reduced to a lower position, being humbled, being mortified, being shamed, being embarrassed. When those kinds of things happen, someone might react, oh, how humiliating to be put in a position like that. So what, is, what do we mean by Christ's humiliation? Let's read that together. Christ's humiliation, read it aloud, please. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This is an eight-point message. Now the bad news is, oh, eight points. The good news is that you'll be able to tick them off in your mind, and you'll know how much longer the message is going to go. So we're going to start out with the very first point. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. John tells us in John 1.14, the word became flesh. It's actually more accurate than God became man, although that's true. But think about that phrase, the word became flesh. We speak of the incarnation, being made flesh, bodily form and substance. Now, this was the second person of the Trinity. It was not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but in a way that stretches our our minds and we can't fully grasp it. It was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that assumed this human nature, yet he did not refrain from continuing as God. His deity always remained. He didn't empty himself of his divine attributes, but only laid them aside for a while. Scripture speaks of it as a veiling of his deity. Uh, you've heard stories about a king 
who will want to find out what's happening down with the people. And so they'll put on some old rags and disguise himself, maybe stoop over a little bit and shuffle along down the streets of the city and say, what, what do you think of the king? Or how do you think things are going? He comes down to their level so he can identify with them. Well, that's maybe a little bit of an illustration of what we mean when we say that the Son of God was born into our life. Now, this was real human flesh. The Word became flesh. You feel your hand, your feet, that, that's flesh right there. That's what the Son of God assumed, came identified with. Remaining God, he became man. Two natures, yet in one person, one center of self-consciousness. Again, we think, oh boy, how do we put that together? We have to accept the scriptures and try to understand it as best we can. Galatians 4.4 tells us he was born of a woman. And we know that what happened there in the manger in Bethlehem was an actual physical birth after a nine-month or so waiting period for Mary to carry the child in her womb. He was born of a woman. At creation, man was made in the image of God. In the incarnation, God was made in the image of man. Solomon said in 1 Kings 8.17, at the dedication of the temple, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon says, is there any way God can come and dwell in a built, great building like this? And the implication is, well, no, he can't do that. And yet John tells us that that's exactly what God came to do in the birth of Christ. It's been said that he humbled himself more in existing in the womb of Mary than in hanging on the cross. Just the fact of his being born is staggering enough. I mean, we could stop right here with point one. And that would give us enough to think about. Wow, the second person of the Trinity assumed human nature, born in that manger in Bethlehem. Wow. But that was just the first step in coming from the glory of heaven. We go to the second step. And that in a low condition or a low position. The word that, I think, refers to as being born. In other words, perhaps his being born could be compensated if he had entered a, a wealthy family in the finest of hospitals of the day, then growing up in the highest of social standing, well-known, accepted, a great philanthropist, a revered authority in the affairs of men. But of course, we know that was not the circumstances into which he was born. Mary and Joseph were relatively poor people. No great wealth, no great social standing. Jesus was born in a smelly place of animals and straw. During his earthly ministry, he was known as the son of the carpenter. You know, that guy from Nazareth. During his ministry, he was despised and rejected by all kinds of people, even his own. He was misunderstood. He was ridiculed. He was mocked and hated. So he was born, and that in a low condition. So there's two steps down from his glory. And now we go to a third step down. 
made under the law. In other words, submitting to the law, to the creation laws, law of gravity, for example, to moral laws, to divine commandments. He who is the Lord of all earth and the supreme lawgiver placed himself in submission to the law. From the moment that he was consciously aware of what was right and what was wrong, Jesus, as a little boy, had to remember to do what God wanted him to do and to obey that. Think of the pressure on that. He was a real human being. He was a real human little boy. Yet as he grew up in his teenage years and so on, he had to submit himself to those laws. There's a phrase that once jumped out at me in a song by the Cathedral's male quartet. He said, I thirst, and yet he made the rivers. He said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So in becoming a man, he had the same duty as every other man to keep God's law perfectly. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law yet offends in one point, he's guilty of all. I use the illustration of that of uh, a person. Well, let's just take Jesus himself. And suppose one day Jesus had said when he was a teenager, I made these fresh cookies for some other people, friends of Nazareth, so don't take any of those cookies. We'll, we'll eat them later. And then just this one time in his whole life on earth, he looked around, nobody was around, and he went over to the cookie jar and he took just one cookie. And though his mother had said, don't take it. That would be enough to make him a complete sinner, complete lawbreaker. Whoever offends in one point is guilty of all. Now you see, only in being perfect and sinless could he carry out all the obligations on behalf of people like us. We cannot live a perfect life. There's no one in this room, including myself, who can say, yeah, I've done a pretty good job. I think I've pretty much obeyed God's laws all the way along. Jesus had to submit himself to the law. He had to come that far down to identify with us, yet without sin. And he had to do this on a continual basis, day after day after day, week after week, year after year, for 33 years on earth, 365 days a year. He had to submit himself to the law, divine commands, the laws of God in particular. He is born, and that in a low condition, made under the law. Now the fourth step down, undergoing all the miseries of this life, undergoing all the sufferings of this life. Because of his own emphasis upon his final sufferings and his teaching, you know how many times he would especially tell his disciples that he was going to be suffering and so on. We think that his agonies mainly were that last week, and particularly the time on the cross. But we have to remember that 
his sufferings were his whole life. All his life. He suffered and underwent the miseries that we, the kinds of things we experience. First of all, think of his common sufferings. Thirst, hunger, pain. I'm sure when Jesus, as a little boy, was running along and tripped and fell and skinned his knee up, it hurt. He might have even gone going crying home to Mary. He said, oh, I skinned up my knee. He suffered that. Yet even more extraordinary is the fact that he had a greater capacity for suffering. Because it was equal in measure and extent with his ideal character of his humanity. His ethical perfection. His sense of righteousness and holiness and veracity. No one could feel grief or moral evil more than Jesus. So we have those common sufferings. And then, secondly, he lived in a world filled with this kind of agony and misery. He had to have daily association with sinners. Every time he turned around, one of his boyhood chums, or one of his teenage friends, or as he got older, some of the religious leaders, or his disciples themselves, how often they failed to live up to the demands of God's law. The hatred and unbelief of his own people. People of Nazareth wanted to push him off the cliff and get rid of him. Cast out of his own hometown. His loneliness. His dependence upon the hospitality and charitable gifts of others during his public ministry. Persecution by his enemies. Assaults from Satan. Undergoing all the miseries of this life. We all have our miseries. We all have our sufferings, physically, mentally, spiritually. Go through these things. Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. He was right there with it. He can identify with us. He wasn't aloof from those kinds of things. He had come down, 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 undergoing all the miseries of this life. So with these thoughts in mind, we can say reverently, Jesus lived a miserable life. A life of misery. A life of continual suffering. Again, we could stop right there. We've considered four points. Wow. Being born... And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life. But we must come down one more step. Undergoing the wrath of God. Now it's my understanding that as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen. As he got closer and closer to that, he began to become more identified with our sins. And therefore, each day, each step as he got closer to Jerusalem, he began to be identified with the wrath of God. The wrath, the divine wrath against sin. Because he's so identified with his people, with us, people like us, 
as sinners. And imagine the growing awareness of the soul of what this was going to mean, not just the horror of a crucifixion, as bad as that was, but this feeling that there's the beginning of estrangement from his father. Scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say about it, but uh, if we put it together, that's my understanding. When I was in junior college, uh, one of the English classes we had was uh, to read a book called Knock on Any Door. Anybody remember that one, Knock on Any Door? It was about a, a young man in Chicago, southern, south Chicago, who killed a policeman. And so he was arrested for that, put in prison, and it was very, uh, a lot of detail about what was going through his mind being in prison. And then as the day of his execution got closer and closer, all the thoughts that were going through him. I remember I was fascinating reading this book, and I was identifying well, how horrible this, this had to be. And this is true of anybody facing execution. To know that, you know, I've got 12 hours left, I've got 9 hours left, here's my last meal, it's now 7 o'clock in the evening, at midnight, I'm going to be put to death. You know, just the horror of that, of that moment there. Well, especially Jesus, turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 38, if you have your Bibles. Jesus is in Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John have gathered with him. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, I, if there's any way I don't have to go through this, I don't want to go through with it. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Down to verse 42. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Remember, we're talking about the last moments of Jesus on this earth. We're talking about a perfect man who is reaching the stage of humiliation where he's falling on his face and he's crying and he's praying to the Father and saying, Father, I don't want to go through this. Is there any way I don't have to do with it? Nevertheless, he kept coming back. Thankfully, for your sake and my sake, he said, not what I want, but what you want. Here is Jesus in that mysterious position of being a man and remaining God and yet praying to God the Father. And then on the cross itself, where he experienced for a moment the same kind of thing that the lost will experience at the final judgment in hell itself. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Aramaic, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of it. At that moment, Jesus felt completely forsaken by the love of the Father for him. 
It was God the Father withdrawing himself with his blessing of his love, visiting humanity with his wrath upon Jesus. Primarily, hell will be a place of eternal wrath, eternal absence of the love of God. No gospel. Jesus underwent that, the wrath of God for people like us. Now we come down another step, step number six. Undergoing the cursed death of the cross. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's one thing to be obedient to the death and face death and so on, but death on a cross... Enduring the horror of a Roman crucifixion was a very terrible thing. The physical agony, the shame, the mockery. It's noteworthy, maybe you haven't noticed this before, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hardly say anything about the crucifixion itself. You get a chance to read that, and you'll see all they say is something like this. And he was crucified. And they crucified him there doesn't deal with the nails and all that, the horror of it, but it was a very horrible, terrible thing. Few tortures were as excruciating as the pain in a crucifixion, not to mention the shame involved with it. There was the Son of God, the most remarkable man who ever lived, nailed to pieces of wood, publicly, people walking by and mocking him. Deuteronomy 21-23 and Galatians 3-13, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How shameful. We come down to step number seven. His humiliation consisted in his being buried. Do you know that his burial is a very important part of his uh, of the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Why does Paul make that point? Why doesn't he just say Christ was, died for our sins according to the Scriptures and he was raised again in his resurrection for us? Why does he throw that little phrase in here and he was buried? I think at least two things. One, to offer proof as his body was placed in the tomb that he really was dead. And secondly, I think to help remove the terror of the grave from the redeemed. To let us know that death is not as terrifying, should not be as terrifying for us as for the unbeliever. So he's buried. And then we come now to the eighth step down from glory. And continuing under the power of death for a time. I think this phrase helps explain that that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. There are different ways of interpreting that, but I'll just share my own understanding of it. That 
when it said he descended into hell, meant he descended into the state of death, experiencing everything which death involves for a human being, including separation of our body and soul. His true human body, there was a real death. The power of death got a hold of him. His heart stopped beating. The life went out of him as his blood was shed. And the body that was taken down from the cross was a dead, non-living substance. His death, however, was not merely the separation of his body and soul as the natural consequence of sin, but above all, the judicially imposed and inflicted punishment of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21a, For God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. He who knew no sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. It says for a time. It was a relatively short time of man-made hours. He died on Good Friday, the rest of that day, and Saturday until his resurrection on Sunday. But it was a time with certain eternal elements to it. Because he bore during that time the infinite judgment of a holy God against sin. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus experienced that to the fullest for us. So with those closing words in the catechism on the burial and the power of death for a time, Jesus had reached rock bottom in his humiliation. How could he go any, any lower than that as he, as he has descended these eight steps that we looked at tonight? While I was preparing this, just recently, I think it was the beginning of this past week, or maybe the end of last week, the week before that, I ran across this little poem by George Herbert. The God of power, as he did ride his majestic robes of glory, resolved to light, and so one day he did descend, undressing all the way. What an interesting thought. The Son of God undressing in his humiliation, laying aside his crown, taking off his royal robes, his royal vestments, as he came down, 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 down. And it started with his being born and got worse from there. There were two stairways that Jesus traveled. One we're not looking at tonight. It's the one that goes up. His exaltation. Maybe at another time I'll deal with that. Christ's exaltation, the Catechism number 28 says, consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world at the last day. 
very important subject, and we must not forget that. But since we're moving toward December 25th, the time when we remember the birth of Christ, we have looked at His humiliation this evening. So I'd like to close reading another poem, synonymous. The word sun appears in it. It's the planet, S-U-N. And here are these words. That the great angel blinding light should shrink his blaze to shine in a poor shepherd's eye. That the unmeasured God low should sink as prisoner in a few poor rags to lie. That a vile manger his low bed should prove who in a throne of stars thunders above. That he whom the sun serves should faintly peep through the clouds of infant flesh. That he, the eternal word, should be a child and weep. That he who made the fire should fear the cold. That heaven's high majesty his court should keep in the clay cottage by each blast controlled. That glorious self should serve our griefs and fears, and fair eternity submit to years. How humiliating. Would you take your hymnals? We're not going to sing it. I'd like you to turn to 241. Number 241. I'll briefly lead us in prayer. And I'd like us to read together the first, or the verses of this hymn. Let's pray. Our Father, we ourselves have been humbled as we think of the humbling of our Savior and all that He went through for us. We praise You, O Lord Jesus, that You were faithful to obey Your Father to secure salvation for us. May we appreciate even anew what You have done on our behalf. We shall praise you not only in the time we have left on earth, but throughout all eternity for securing our salvation for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read aloud these verses. Join me, please. Thou dost reign on high with a kingly crown, yet thou camest to earth for me. And in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for Thee. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming Thy royal degree. But of lowly birth didst Thou come to earth, and in great humility. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for Thee. The foxes found rest, and the birds their nest, in the shade of the forest tree. But thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the deserts of Galilee. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. Thou camest, O Lord, with the living word that should set thy people free. But with mocking scorn and with crown of thorn, they bore thee to Calvary. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, thy cross is my only plea. 
when heaven's arches shall ring and her choirs shall sing at thy coming to victory, let thy voice call me home, saying, yet there is room, there is room at my side for thee. And my heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. Blessings on you, and I look forward to seeing you again next weekend.